Amen. Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24 with me. Luke chapter 24, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 35. We've looked at those verses two weeks ago, so we'll be kind of touching on them again this morning and then kind of talking about an application, but we'll, we'll read that passage here together. As you turn to Luke chapter 24, just a reminder, several things going on. I encourage you to look through your bulletins uh, so you know what's going on in the life of our church, but also just want to highlight our care group ministry. If you haven't already been involved in that, let me, let me just encourage you to do so. There's still the opportunity to sign up for a care group uh, there in the hallway. It's one of the one of the ways I believe that we can uh, be involved in one another's lives and just a, a neat, neat ministry encourage you to avail yourself of that opportunity if you haven't already done so. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. If you would stand with me if you're able, in honor of God as we read his word together this morning. Luke chapter 24, we're on the Sunday that Jesus has risen from the dead. Where that, it's that afternoon, we come to verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were walk, talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body... They came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. And so he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, 
Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do make yourself known to us. And Father, my request for us this morning, again, is that you would open our eyes, allow us to see you, give us the grace to know who you are through your word. We pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen. My last class in seminary was a theology of the New Testament. It was a week-long class. It was taught in Chicago, and in celebration of me finishing seminary, Whitney went with me to the class, and we took it together. The professor that taught it was a little bit eccentric, and as he kind of talked through the week, we we enjoyed listening to him, and, and, and one afternoon as, as he was teaching, he was frustrated, I think, a little bit with the reaction of the class, and so he said, look, I'm, I'm talking here about Paul and, and his ministry and how it shaped the New Testament, and I don't think you guys are really grasping what, I, what I'm trying to get you to see, so here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to go out here into the city of Chicago and you know, break into small groups of two and, and, and be the Apostle Paul in Chicago. Like, excuse me? Be the, be the Apostle Paul. Just like Paul was in Thessalonica or, or Paul was in Ephesus and you're in Chicago now, go be the Apostle Paul. The question is asked someone, you know, uh, is this for a grade? Um, Yes, it's an assignment, it's for a grade. How are you going to be evaluating us? I mean, do we need to get arrested? Do we need to cause a riot? Do you want us to kind of shake things up at a synagogue or something? I mean, what, what exactly, how do we be the Apostle Paul? He goes, go, go be the Apostle Paul in Chicago. So now, I, I knew this professor well to, to kind of know that there was no right answer to the assignment at this point. And so I, I, we walk out of the, the classroom, out of the building there into the streets of Chicago, and my wife uh, says, now, Daniel, uh, what does this mean? What are we supposed to do? I said, what this means is you and I just got a date night. Uh, <laughs> there's no right answer here. We're going to go have a fun time in Chicago, come back to the group and, and tell them, you know, we're the Apostle Paul on a date in Chicago. Uh, we didn't say that, uh, but when we came back, you know, there was, there was no wrong, wrong or right answer. We kind of said, this is, this is one thing we did in Chicago that, that, that Paul might have done, the Apostle Paul. And the professor was fine with whatever answers we had because there was no criteria, right? It was just kind of a, once you go out and kind of think creatively, we came back and, and all answers were okay, as long as we had done something. Two weeks ago, I asked you this question. I said, what makes preaching effective? What makes preaching good? What are the characteristics of good preaching? You know, there's so many different styles of preaching. Is it kind of like that, that assignment I had? There, there's no wrong answer as long as you try hard and do, do a reasonably good job that you, you've succeeded. Or are there some 
characteristics that all good preaching possesses. And what I would suggest to you this morning is that even though God uses people that have very different personalities, and even though as you look at good preaching, you see good preaching come from people of very different backgrounds that employ very different styles sometimes, what I'm going to suggest to you this morning as we think about evaluating preaching is that all good biblical preaching shares some common characteristics. There are some foundational truths that must be true of all good biblical preaching. This morning we're going to talk about what those foundational elements of all good preaching are, at least some of those foundational elements. Now remember also two weeks ago what I said we were going to do is we're going to look at this story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus with these two disciples, and we are going to, to glean from this story the, the main idea, the main principle that I think we get from this text, and then we are going to give a specific application. So look at uh, Luke 24 with me again, if you would, and I'm going to kind of remind you what we looked at as we looked at this story and remind us what the main idea is. Remember these, these two disciples, they're going from Jerusalem on the afternoon that Jesus has risen from the dead. It's Sunday afternoon, and they're on the road to Emmaus, and Luke tells us that as they're on the road to Emmaus, they're engaged in a conversation with one another. It's not a casual conversation. The words that Luke uses to describe this conversation tell us that it's an intensely emotional conversation. It's almost a, a debate, and We've talked about how, we talked two weeks ago about how sometimes when you're involved in a situation that's really eating at you, you can, you have to keep talking about it, and as you keep talking about it, you just kind of keep it going around in circles, and I think that's what's taking place here. They're on the road to Emmaus, and they're continuing to talk about the things that have happened, and they keep going around in a circle, and they're, they're very emotional as they talk about the things that have taken place. As they're kind of talking through the things that have taken place, going over the same themes again and again and again, Jesus joins them. And as he joins them, he hears their conversation and he asks, what are you guys talking about? And this, this first section of the story, I believe, deals with these disciples' confusion, the confusion that they have. Cleopas and the other disciple, Jesus' question literally stops them in their tracks, and they look very sad. And Cleopas, in a very sarcastic way, says, are, are, he essentially says, are you the most ignorant person in Jerusalem? Are you the only even visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't even know what's taken place? And Jesus says, what? What things? And Cleopas and the other disciple kind of lay out at least four different things that are causing them to, to be confused. They, they say, well, first of all, there was this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, and, and he was a prophet who was mighty in, in word and deed before God and the people. I mean, we're not doubting that. We, we know that he was a prophet. We know that he was a prophet of God. And the second thing that Cleopas and this other disciple are wrestling with is that Jesus, this prophet of God, was rejected. If you look at the text, you see in verse 20, the, 
the chief priests, rulers, delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they, they crucified him. And so he was a prophet, and there was this, this sham of a trial, and he was delivered up to be crucified. And, and, and not only that, the third thing is, you have to understand, we had our hope in him. We, we believed in him. We trusted in him. And we had hoped that he would be the one who re, would redeem Israel. So he was a prophet. He was rejected by our leaders. We'd had our hope in him. We thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel, not be betrayed by Israel. And, and now here's where things get really weird. The fourth thing is some, some strange things have been taking place. Some women of our company, verse 22, have amazed us. They were at the tomb this morning. They didn't find the body, and they instead saw a vision. They don't believe it's truly angels. They saw a vision of angels, and the angel said something really weird. The angel said that Jesus was alive. Some of our company went. Everything was as the women had said, but him they did not see. What is that? Confusion. Confusion. Prophet. Rejected. We'd hoped they'd redeem Israel, and now there's been these crazy vision things, and, and there's a missing body. We can't find a dead or alive Jesus. It's very distressing. And Jesus, so that's their confusion. Then Jesus the next part of the story gives them an explanation. And he begins his explanation by calling them names. Listen, you, you spiritually slow, not too bright people, slow to believe all the things that the prophets have said. He says this in verse 25. Then he says in verse 26, wasn't it necessary that the Messiah, the Christ, should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, I think verse 27 is the key verse of this story. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scripture the things concerning himself. That, what that means is that he, he takes all of Scripture and he explains it to them. He shows them how not only was the Messiah to be one who entered into God's glory and redeemed Israel, but the Messiah was also, he shows them in Scripture, one who was to suffer. He doesn't tell them any, any uh, he doesn't take them to any new biblical passage. He simply helps them understand passages they were already familiar with. That's explanation. As we came to that verse, I, I told you, I said, I, I believe that this is where we find the main idea of the text. All of Scripture, all of God's Word explains Jesus Christ. If you want to know who Jesus Christ is, go to God's Word. If you want to rightly know God's Word and rightly interpret God's Word, interpret it in light of the person of Jesus Christ. There's not a page in your Bible, not a paragraph, not a verse that doesn't in some way point to the person of Jesus Christ, either His work, His words, His deeds, His person. All of Scripture in some way helps us understand the person of Jesus, and how we are to live in light of who he is.
And we'll continue talking about that in the coming, the coming months as we give an overview of the Old Testament. All of Scripture reveals Jesus Christ to us. Now, in the rest of Luke 24, it goes on and it talks about how they gained understanding and in their understanding went and told the disciples, they see Jesus as he is, they break the bread with him, they go and they tell the disciples what they've seen and the disciples tell them what they've seen. So there's confusion, then there's explanation, then there's understanding. That's what we saw as we went through Luke 24 last week. And what I told you again, we're going to go through the story, which we did two weeks ago. We're going to go through the story. We're going to, to glean the main idea from that story that, that all of Scripture reveals Jesus Christ to us. We come to Scripture to understand Jesus. I said, we're going to glean that main idea, and then we're going to give an extended application of that main idea which we began doing last week, we're going to continue doing, or two weeks ago, we're going to continue doing this morning, and that application is in the area of preaching. If it is true that all of Scripture reveals Jesus Christ to us, and if it's true that we cannot know who Jesus Christ is apart from Scripture, how does that affect preaching? How is our preaching supposed to be like the preaching that Jesus engages here on the road to Emmaus. What is preaching supposed to be like? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And as we look at that extended application, I think that's going to help us understand the main idea again and then apply it in other areas of our lives. So let's begin by looking at uh, this, this first principle regarding what uh, a truth regarding what proclaiming Christ through preaching should look like. Number one, the first thing I want us to consider is the purpose. The purpose of preaching is to proclaim Christ. Why do I get up every week, except weeks I'm gone, why do I get up every week and, and, and preach for 15 minutes or so? It's three 15-minute messages every week. Uh, why, why do we do that every, every Sunday? What's the purpose of it? I mentioned a few months ago a, a TED's talk that I'd seen by a guy named, I think it's Simon Sindic or something like that, and he had something called the Golden Circle, and it's for, it was kind of a, a talk delivered to business people. He says, you know, there's this Golden Circle, and most companies only ask uh, the questions kind of on the outer end of the circle. They only ask, uh, what are we doing and how are we going to do it? So, you know, uh, what are we going to do? We're going to build spacely sprockets. And, and how are we going to do it? Well, here's the process. Or you're a, a video rental company. What are we going to do? We're going to rent videos. And, and how are we going to do it? We're going to build a store and people are going to come and, and rent the DVDs from us or whatever. He said, that's how most companies operate. But, but what companies should do, he suggested, is ask the more central core question, and that is, why are we going to do what we do? I've read a lot of books on preaching, and what struck me is that so many books on preaching just deal with the what and the how. What are we going to do in terms of, 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 of preaching, and, and how are we going to preach? And they assume some things about why. They assume, these books assume, well, the, pur the purpose of preaching must be to keep people's attention, or the purpose of preaching must be to connect with people emotionally, or the purpose of preaching is to, to cause this emotional response to take place in the hearts of individuals. And you know what? All those things uh, are nice and, and can be great, but, but quite frankly, are not my ultimate purpose. My ultimate purpose ha has nothing to do with whether or not you and I connect emotionally on a Sunday morning, Okay. <laughs> 
be nice if it happened, but not the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose in preaching is to proclaim the person, Jesus Christ. Keep your finger there in Luke 24 and and, and turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You're in Luke, you go to John, Acts, Romans, then you get to 1 Corinthians. And, And look at what Paul, how Paul describes his purpose in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He's talking about the cross and the word of the cross, the message of the cross. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, The word of the cross is, is folly to those who are perishing. Uh, to those who aren't Christians, the message of the cross is, is silliness, it's foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And he goes on and he talks about the Jew and the Greek. And he says, look, Jews, this is verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ. We proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly or foolishness to Gentiles. The purpose of preaching is to proclaim the person of Jesus Christ. And, and in Paul's day, the Greeks would want a, a, an oratorical uh, presentation that was sound in logic and logic and, and, and worked in the mind in beautiful ways. And Paul says, look, my, my, my purpose isn't to, to come and present this, this flowery speech. The Jews would want these, these signs. And look, my, my purpose isn't to come with signs. I have a very simple purpose, and that is to preach Christ crucified, a message that for many is foolishness says, verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 1, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It goes down into chapter 2. He says, it talks about his ministry among those in Corinth. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaim to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul would describe his ministry among the people in Colossae in a similar way. Colossians chapter 1, he would say, uh, him, that is Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone complete or mature in Christ. The reason that we come together on a, on a Sunday morning is is. Uh, not just so that we can, can feel good about ourselves or feel bad about ourselves. The, the reason that I preach isn't just to, just to win the unconverted. It's not to do anything ultimately except to glorify God by proclaiming His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the reason we preach. We see this throughout the New Testament. In Acts chapter 8, for example, Philip it says, opens his mouth, and beginning with Isaiah, he told the Ethiopian the good news about Jesus. In Acts chapter 10, we have Peter preaching, and Peter preaching in Acts chapter 10, it says that uh, Peter's talking, he says, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, that is Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Paul in Acts 17 goes into Thessalonica. And what does he do? Luke tells us he goes into a synagogue of the Jews 
And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and improving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Paul, as he preaches, proclaims Christ. All biblical preaching, all biblical preaching understands that our task is to proclaim Christ. Sidney Gerdanus would say this, to preach Christ is to proclaim some, some facet of the person, work, or teaching of Jesus of Nazareth so that people may believe Him, trust Him, love Him, and obey Him. That's why we preach, ultimately, is to proclaim Christ. That is the purpose of preaching. That's the first thing I want us to know. Here's the second foundational truth I want us to think about as we think about this application of, of what we see Jesus doing with these disciples on the road to Emmaus and how it affects our preaching. The second thing is this. The task of preaching, the task of preaching is to explain and apply Scripture. So the purpose is to proclaim Christ. Now, now how do we do that? Well, we do that by explaining Scripture and helping us to understand how to live it out in our lives. If you look again at Luke 24, I love what happens in verse 27. It says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scripture the things concerning himself. And that word interpreted is a, the same word that sometimes can be used to, to translate or to explain. The root of that word is the same root from which we get the word hermeneutics, which means to explain a text. As we come to Scripture, our task is to explain it. Now, let me give you a couple principles as we think about this, this truth that the task of preaching, the, the job of the preacher is to explain and apply Scripture. The first thing that I think we have to understand is this. Simply quoting a Bible verse or simply saying a couple pleasant things about the Bible and then telling some stories doesn't fulfill the task of preaching. Simply telling you a couple biblical thoughts and then telling you some stories and making an emotional plea isn't fulfilling the task of preaching. The job of the pastor is to go deep into the text. The second principle, as we, th we think about this idea that we have to explain and apply Scripture, num number one, we can't just give some superficial uh, reading of one verse and then move on or just kind of haphazardly kind of deal with a bunch of different texts. Another thought is this. Good preaching, biblical preaching, requires not just hard work on the part of the pastor, but on the part of the congregation as well. I hope that you know how much easier you make my job by being a church that loves and demands God's Word. I want to read a, a quote that I've, I've uh, mentioned before, and I, I blogged about it a, a few weeks ago. We don't know who wrote this, but I love how this person describes 
the work of a pastor. And, and as he describes the work of the pastor, he's describing the attitude that should be in place in the, the part of the congregation as a pastor has the, the nerve to stand in the pulpit. Listen to what this, listen to what this person says about what the, what the church needs to do to her pastor. Uh, fling the pastor into his office. Tear the office sign from the door and nail on the sign, study. Take him off mailing list. Take, uh, lock him up with his books and his typewriter and his Bible, written a little while ago. Uh, slam him down on his knees before texts and broken hearts and the lives of a superficial flock and a holy God. Force him to be the one man in our community who knows about God. Throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Shut his mouth forever with spouting remarks. Stop his tongue from tripping lightly over non-essentials. Require him to say something before he dares break the silence. Burn his eyes with weary study. Wreck his emotional poise with worry for God. Make him exchange his pious stance for a humble walk with God and man. Rip out his telephone. Burn up his ecclesiastical success sheets. Put water in his gas tank. Give him a Bible and tie him to the pulpit and make him preach the word of the living God. Test him. Quiz him. Examine him. Humiliate him for his ignorance of things divine. Laugh at his frustrated effort to play psychiatrist. Shame him for his good comprehension of finances, batting averages, and politics. Form a choir and raise a chant and haunt him with it day and night. Sir, we would see Jesus. And when at long last he dares essay the pulpit, Ask him if he has a word from God. If he does not, dismiss him. Tell him you can read the morning paper. You can digest the commentary, the television commentaries. You can think through the day's superficial problems and manage the community's drives and bless the sorted baked potatoes and green beans ad infinitum better than he. Command him not to come back until he's read and reread written and rewritten until he can stand up, worn and forlorn, and say, Thus saith the Lord. Sit down before him and listen to the only word he has left, God's word. Let him be totally ignorant of gossip, but give him, give him a chapter and order him to walk around it to camp on it, to sup with it, and come at last and speak it backward and forward until all he says about it rings with the truth of eternity. The task of preaching is to explain this text, to explain the Word of God. And this requires not just a, a superficial reading of a text, but it, it requires a difficult work on, on the part of both the preacher and the congregation. You know, I mentioned uh, two weeks ago that one of the things I'm, I'm constantly doing is evaluating you know, how, how I preach and whether or not what I'm doing is what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and you know, just to be transparent, one of the concerns that, that people, if they're going to con- 
if they're going to, to mention a concern they have with my preaching, if they're brave enough to, to do that since I'm so intimidating. Uh, you know, they, they, sometimes people say, you know, uh, is, is your preaching uh, too academic? Does it spend too much time in, in the text? Is it, is, it, is it too deep? And of course, we don't want to be too deep. We, we don't want to be so deep that, that people can't understand what we're saying. We don't want to be so deep that people leave with simply a, an intellectual understanding of God's Word and, and no idea how to apply it in their lives. But I, I believe this about preaching. I believe the ultimate purpose of preaching is to proclaim Christ, and the place we find Christ is is not in my stories about my family, as, as much as I enjoy telling stories about my family, and they're not here in second service, so I can tell a lot of them. Uh, I enjoy telling those stories. They're helpful. I, I enjoy uh, th- those things, and, and I enjoy sometimes illustration from politics, but you're not going to find life change in stories about my family and stories about politics and illustrations from the world around us. You don't need my commentary on, on three things Daniel thinks about how to live a better life. You need God's Word. You need to understand it. You, you don't need me to emotionally prop you up for the week ahead. You need God's Word. Now, some of those things may take place as one faithfully proclaims God's Word. There may be some application that occurs from that, but what you ultimately need is, is God's Word. And, and my hope is this. My, my hope is that as we, as we dive into God's Word together, sometimes we're going to go, go deeper than, than maybe some of us can, can grasp, maybe especially those of us who are younger in the faith or, or younger in terms of age. But what I think is going to happen is, is as we go deeper into those things that, of, of God's Word, it's going to cause those of us who are younger or less mature or have a harder time, it's going gonna, it's gonna to push us further. And we're going to, to gain in our ability to understand and appreciate apply God's Word. And if we simply stayed at a superficial level, that wouldn't take place. All we'd have is a, a congregation full of people who couldn't understand the deep things of God. In fact, here's the interesting thing about these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. I don't believe that Jesus opened up a text to them that they had never thought of before. I don't think he said, now the prophet Isaiah, and the other guy goes, who? Isaiah. Oh, I've never heard of Isaiah. Now, now what did he do again? Oh, let me tell you, says you. No, I don't think that happened. But I think these two disciples had been exposed to such a superficial reading of the texts that they didn't understand Christ in them. Their need was for someone to explain Scripture rightly and deeply and fully to them. The sermon or biblical preaching requires hard work on the part of of both the preacher and the congregation, and and, and the sermon is authoritative only to the degree that it agrees with God's Word, right? And I believe the most effective type of preaching is something we call expository preaching. Uh, Richard Mayhew is a professor at uh, Master's Seminary, and and this is what, how he describes expository preaching. He says it's, it's a type of preaching that finds its sole source in a, a single text of Scripture. The, the message is extracted from Scripture through careful exegesis, through careful study. And then the, the, the message preparation interprets Scripture, and then it explains the original God-intended meaning of Scripture and then applies it for people today. And I believe in a church 
I believe in a church that, that faithfully preaches expositorily, there's going to be some benefits. I think in a church that faithfully preaches expositionally, you're going to understand that the authority in the church doesn't reside in a, in a person, in, in a pastor or in a group of, of elders. You're going to see that the ultimate authority lies in God as, as revealed in his word. I think in a church that is faithful to, to preach expositionally, a church is going to be exposed to the whole counsel of God. You know, maybe if I was just going to talk about the things that interest to me, I, I'd, I'd give you, um, you could talk to my kids and they'll tell you the things that, that bore them that interest me. You know, I might, I might talk to you for, for 15 weeks about, about economics and history and and, and my thoughts on that, those things. And I could, or I might, may, if I want to talk about some sin issue, I'd talk about pride for, for, you know, three years or something. But a pastor who's preaching expositionally, who's going through God's word a paragraph at a time through a larger portion of scripture is forced to deal with the things that God deals with and cover the subjects that, that God covers. When I was uh, younger in elementary school, I went to, to several different churches in, until I got to sixth grade. I'd, we'd been in several different churches. And if you'd asked me as a young kid, uh, tell me about preaching, or if somebody'd asked me, what, what book does the Bible, or what book does the preacher use to preach from? I would say the Bible. But, and this has been Pastor Rich's testimony as well, as, as he talks about his formative years. But if you'd asked me, could I do what a preacher does. I say, well, no. I mean, the preacher must have some sort of like secret decoder ring or something. I mean, uh, whenever I was exposed to preaching as a young kid, the pastor would stand up and he'd, he'd talk about this verse, and then he'd talk about another verse, and he'd talk about something else somewhere else. And, and it was like this very complicated system. I, I was like, how in the world did he know that all those verses went together? And, and, and it, it, the Bible just seemed like this mysterious book to me. But then in sixth grade, I started going to a church where the pastor preached expositionally, where he just kind of took a, a book of the Bible, and then, you know, one Sunday went through this paragraph or these verses, and the next Sunday went through this, this paragraph, and just kind of went through. And suddenly, suddenly God's Word made sense to me. I understood where the pastor was getting what he was saying. I understood God's word in a new way, and it, it, it burned in my heart in a, in a whole new way. I understood the authority of Scripture in a whole new way. And I believe that what takes place in a church where God's word is preached expositionally, that God's people have a greater understanding of, of how to understand and apply God's word in their own lives. It's not just the pastor who has some secret code and understands how to interpret Scripture, but the entire body of Christ knows how to read and understand and apply God's Word. Well, the task of preaching is to explain and apply Scripture because the, the purpose of preaching is to proclaim Christ. Number three, the, the third thing I want us to think about here is this. The subject of preaching is Jesus Christ. The subject of preaching is Jesus Christ. This makes sense, right? If the purpose of preaching is to proclaim Christ, and the task is to explain Scripture, and all of Scripture is about Jesus Christ, what does that mean? It means the subject of every sermon is the person of Jesus Christ. Sidney Grenanus asks an interesting question. He says, is it possible to preach a Christian sermon without mentioning Jesus? And the answer, of course, is, is absolutely not. 
And sometimes we come to the Old Testament and, and a, a person might be, be teaching it from the Old Testament and they never mention the person of Jesus Christ as they go through that text. Now, is that Christian preaching? And the answer is no. The subject of, of all of Scripture is the person of Jesus Christ. And as we look at the Old Testament through the cross, we understand that, that all of the Old Testament is somehow preparing us for the work of Jesus Christ. I was reading an interview with the creator of VeggieTales, uh, Phil Vilasek or, or something like that, and, and he was talking about how he, he looked back on his, his work on VeggieTales, and my, my family enjoys watching the VeggieTales, but he, he saw a glaring error in what he had done as, as he had prepared those, those animated shorts. He said he was preaching moralism without Christ. If you go back and you watch the VeggieTales, you realize that, that, that Christ isn't mentioned. The gospel isn't proclaimed. The story of Goliath and David becomes a story of bravery. The story of, of Joseph is about morality and, and living in a pure way. Or the story of, of Joshua is about being courageous. And, and any, any Bible passage or any preaching that simply makes the message about living a moral life instead of a gospel-centered life is not Christian preaching. As we come to the text, we understand that the subject of preaching is Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 2, Paul says that He's talking about the riches of full assurance of understanding the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And in Christ, he says in Colossians 2.3, are hidden all the treasures of, of wisdom and knowledge. He says, I say this so that no one can, can persuade you with plausible or delude you with plausible arguments. So it's, it's in the person of Jesus Christ in which all wisdom and knowledge is contained. It's, it's in the person of Jesus Christ that we know how to live life and, and we know what life is and, and what reality is in the first place. The subject of all preaching is Christ. What do we find in the Old Testament? And as we go through the Old Testament, we, we find out about God's grace. We find out about humanity's sin. We find out about the character of God. We find out about mercy. We find about the, the promise and person of Christ, how God is going to ultimately deal with this problem of sin and detached relationship that we have from Him. We find out about the, the need for blood sacrifice in order to deal with sin. Sometimes as a, a dad... I sometimes get a little bit nervous as we go through the Old Testament passages, and and I've been sometimes um, concerned as we've started a book of the, you know our family reads a, about a chapter of the the Bible tonight uh, about a chapter of the Bible together every night in our family devotional times, and sometimes uh, I wonder you know how much are my, our kids really going to get from this this chapter in the Old Testament? Maybe we just should do the New Testament so they can understand you know the rest of the story. But I was thinking about it this week, or excuse me, two weeks ago, whenever I was thinking about reading through the Old Testament with my family, and I, I just kind of jotted down a couple things that my kids have mentioned as we've gone through the Old Testament together, observation they've, they've made. I remember reading through the Psalms and my uh, son saying, Dad, we sure see this word 
steadfast a lot. This phrase, steadfast love, a lot in the Psalms. We've read through the Old Testament, they understood steadfast love, God's, God's faithfulness. As we read through Leviticus, my children mentioned how, how concerned God must be about how we, we worship as he described all the, the aspects of, of what worship looked like. We, we talked about the reality of sin and its consequences. Now, some of my children have very fanciful uh, interpretations of the Old Testament that I don't recommend to people, but uh, in general, it's been incredibly encouraging to me. The subject of all preaching is Jesus Christ, and if it's not Jesus Christ, it's legalism and moralism. Final thought that I want us to consider. The fruit of preaching, the fruit of preaching is conviction and then life change. I love the movement that takes place here in Luke 24. You take guys who are confused, you take them to God's word and explain it to them, and there's conviction of truth and life changes result. The problem with much modern preaching is that you start with confusion, then you listen to a sermon that celebrates confusion. There's no conviction as to what the truth is, and then there's an expect- expectation that you live differently anyway. What we see in Scripture is that there should be conviction of the truth and life change as a response. True preaching doesn't celebrate uncertainty. It doesn't celebrate arrogance, but it doesn't celebrate this, this false humility either. A failure to believe Scripture we see here is not Scripture's fault, it's our fault. And true preaching is always going to be countercultural. It is always going to call on people to act in a way that is different from the prevailing winds of the current cultural climate. The word of the cross is foolishness. It's folly. It's embarrassing. It stands in stark contrast to the cultural wind of the day. I told you two weeks ago what I want us to do is to look at the main idea that, that all of Scripture reveals the person of Jesus Christ and then I want us to, to see a very extended application in the area of preaching, and then I want, I want to go back to the main idea. What does this mean for you and me, apart from just a Sunday morning? Well, I think, first of all, it means that, that you and I must understand what God-honoring, God-honoring Christ-centered preaching looks like. So, okay, this is the type of, of preaching that I, I am going to demand of my leaders and, and pray for them and, and help them in, and encourage them in. And it also means that that just as I demand that my pastor be a person of the book who refuses to bring me anything less than God's Word, that is going to be the same standard I have in my own life for the way that I approach my understanding of God. That I'm not going to simply say, you know what, I think God is this, or I think God is that, but you and I are going to commit together. Look, how do I find out who Jesus is? How do the disciples on the road to Emmaus find out who Jesus is? By going to God's Word and having it explained to them. So that we would go to God's Word and have God explain to us in His Word who He is to us. That we would understand our sin, our need for a Savior, 
we would understand the provision of a Savior in the person of Jesus Christ and what it looks like to place our trust in Him alone for our salvation and live life in light of that. Conviction, then life change. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the good news of Your Son, Jesus. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be faithful in following after Him by Your grace. We pray this in His name. Amen.